gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we appreciate you joining us. If you would like to support the work that we're doing, you can do that in one of several ways. You can do that monthly on Patreon or one-time donation on PayPal. You can purchase one of our merch products. We have shirts and mugs and then also some journals. And another way you can do that is share this podcast. And lastly, it also helps if you give us a, a nice review on iTunes, or I think on some of the other podcast apps, you're also able to review. So one of the things I wanted to mention before we get started today is I've told some people, especially my husband, I think one of the most surprising things for me in starting Theology Gals is really right from the very beginning of this was hearing so many stories of abuse. And I've wondered to myself, have I been naive or um, maybe blessed that I haven't experienced some of these things? But that's one reason why we're talking about some of these things, because I have realized that it is out there far more than I think any of us realize or know, unless you're somebody who's really been in circles and seen it and maybe have a greater understanding of how prevalent it is. Rachel knows that I'll even get messages where somebody will describe a story and say, is this abuse? Mm -hmm. And their story is so obviously abuse. It's an extreme example even. But I think we don't even recognize what abuse looks like in a lot of a lot of ways. And physical abuse, I think we all can say, we know what that looks like, right? Um, but spiritual abuse, I think this is one that I've learned a lot more about, especially in the last year, um, 
I'm going to put a lot in the episode notes, a lot of resources. I think that Diane Langberg's book and our episode that we did with her is an excellent, excellent resource. Um, But we really want to just kind of give an overview of spiritual abuse. And we have a, a couple authors we're going to be having on that have some books that will deal with this also. So we thought it'd be good to do just an overview. So, um, Rachel, do you get some of those stories too? Because I would think with your book. Yeah, I, I do. I get stories quite often. Um, I have asked in the last year or so for people who are willing to share their stories with me to, to, tell me about some of their experiences and but even you know beyond that I regularly hear from people who have either read what I've written in my book or heard us here or read other articles that I've written and have questions or they tell me about things that they've been through in their own lives or their churches and um, it really is it's very sobering to hear people talk about what they've gone through Uh, and yet too it's the consistency in the stories, like it, you can tell that people that there are very similar experiences that a number of, particularly women, but men too, have been through in in their lives and in their churches. And these tactics that, like what we'll be talking about today, uh, these tactics are very um, similar across the board. Yeah, I've I've noticed that also. And there's even a couple podcasts, and I've listened to some episodes. And um, there's one. I'll, I'll have to look up the name, but it's people that came out of the IFB, the Independent Fundamentalist mm-hmm. Baptist. And um, I've listened to a couple of episodes where they've told some stories. And then there's the Control Freak Christianity podcast, and they, they have some stories. But, you know, one of the things you'll see when you read about it is a lot of times it's covered up in the church. It's not talked about because we got to protect the church. It'll make the church look bad if we expose this, those sorts of um things that you hear a lot mm-hmm. and it it's everywhere. So we need to talk about it. It is everywhere. And, you know, this is one of those things that there isn't any denomination or type of church where they are free of abuse. Like everybody, um, people who come, who have abusive, who've been through abusive situations come out of all various church backgrounds. So, um, you know, this is not just a Catholic church situation or um, only uh, complementarian churches or, you know, this is, there are, there's abuse in every type of church. I read something once, and this is a while ago, so I don't even know that I could find it, but it was talking about how abusers, I think it was specifically about um, sexual abusers mm-hmm. um, of children, but it talked about there is a large percentage, I think it was like 80% of, of these abusers that consider themselves religious. Mm-hmm. And it was an article about why this would be. And one of the things it said was people know that Christians are more trusting. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that and was forgiving. fascinating. And forgiving, yes. Mm-hmm. And so they find, you know, quote unquote, safe space for them. And, you know, and I think that's one of those places where as Christians, we need to be um, you know, the the balance of, you know, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, right? We need to be aware and not naive, um, but then also um, 
still tenderhearted towards others. You know, there's a balance in how we treat people. But I think that if we focus on um, how to protect the vulnerable and how to defend those who um, and help those who have been abused instead of ways that protect and defend the abuser, I think that it will be a benefit for our churches. You know, uh, you've probably heard discussions on this, and this isn't specifically about spiritual abuse, but you'll sometimes hear somebody will come out. I mean, we we saw this with um, the Rachel Den Hollander story where people kind of had kept that a secret, more of a secret, um, and then come out and expose it. And people that are ignorant will say, well, why didn't you tell sooner? Yeah. Um, we have not created a safe space for people to tell. Uh, and I think especially when we talk about spiritual abuse and you read some of these stories, um, right now we've got the Ravi Zacharias stories, people are scared. Um, mm-hmm. They think that they won't be believed, mm-hmm. that they may be gaslighted and any number of things. And so that's one thing we need to work on in, in the church is creating a safe space for people to be able to come forward and say, hey, this happened to me, because mm-hmm. the amount of girls in our Facebook group that were molested in the church as children mm-hmm. is shocking. Yeah. And a lot of them that said, I'm, I'm just now telling for the first time because they've been scared. I mean, it is frightening. And, and we know that even in in secular institutions, it, there is still a, a strong tendency not to believe people who come forward and say they've been abused. So there, you know, you're already fighting with, against a certain perception of people, uh, a certain way pe- uh, people who um, come forward are treated. That it's understandable why many are hesitant to. And then if you compound that with places where it should be safe, like coming forward in the church and getting help there um, that end up not being safe for a lot of people, then, you know, it really is not surprising that many people are hesitant to come forward. And I want to say one more thing until we um, dig in. I know that there are people out there, I actually had one of my own friends come and say to me, well, you can't just believe all victims because there could be false allegations. So I'm going to save this. False allegations are actually very rare. Um, And obviously, if there is an accusation, it needs to be investigated. But that's where we believe we say, okay, we're going to take this accusation serious and we're going to look at it. But this Assuming that there's lots of false accusations, it's just not reality. I mean, yes, they happen. Um, the people that I've, uh, abuse advocates and others that I've worked with and talked to, um, even in between pastors and um, other well-known advocacy type groups and law enforcement too, um, they'll tell you that, you know, that they can there are patterns that they see with false accusations where it's, it's, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly that they are versus, you know, the, the weight and preponderance of true allegations that are dismissed by people. Right. So that it is better to um, take the time, have the, the authorities investigate and see what comes of it, of it rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I think most of them are false, and what if it is? And, you know, it's really, and this is one thing that we'll get into with other places, too, that we've talked about abuse. It's not really up to the church to determine 
to look at something, especially when you're talking about criminal abuse, and determine whether or not there's um, there's anything to the charges. It's up to the church to um, be open for those investigations and to be um, uh, upfront with the authorities so that uh, abuse doesn't get swept under the rug. Yeah, I remember um, I I think I told the story before, but I think it makes an important point when um, I suspected a, a child that was visiting our church was being abused and I went to our pastor and I said, but I don't know for sure. And he said, well, it's not our job to investigate. It's our job mm-hmm. to report if we suspect. Right. One of the things um, I thought would be helpful was just to start with defining abuse because I, I kind of went through and found some different just basic definitions. And I think one of the problems is that people think of it, I think some people think of it only in terms of physical abuse. I think of that in regards to like a marital relationship. And we've talked to um your pastor, Todd Bordeaux, one of the words that he used that I find very helpful was cruelty. Mm-hmm. Um, abuse can also be kind of very basic, uh, using something to bad effect or for a bad purpose, the misuse of something. These are dictionary definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, treat a person or an animal with cruelty or violence, especially regularly, repeatedly. The improper use of something cruel. We, we see that word cruel that Todd used mm-hmm. um, a lot. Cruel and violent treatment of a person or animal. And abuse can come in many forms, such as physical or verbal maltreatment, injury, assault, violation, rape, unjust practices, crimes, or other types of aggression. So, what are some types of abuse? Well, I think the one that uh, most people think of um, are either physical or sexual abuse, right? So physical abuse is any kind of intentional injury to someone. Uh, This is where you get a lot of the domestic violence uh, falls under physical abuse. It's, you know, injuring, physically injuring someone. Um, Of course, sexual abuse then would be any kind of non-consensual sexual contact. Um, So you have child sex, sexual abuse, you have rape, you have um, anything. And this is where like clergy, clerical sex, sexual abuse, this, this shows up here where um, pastors, and this is true in Texas, I know, that um, a relationship between a pastor and one of their um, congregation members is considered um, non-consensual because of the power difference that the ca- congregant is technically not able to consent uh, because of the power differential. And so there's there's any there are several different ways that you can understand um, or interpret sexual abuse in that because of these definitions. You know, this is too, like, if someone has been, um, like, the date rape issues and, like, date rape drugs. And so, someone that you know, this doesn't mean that you were held at knife point. It is possible to be raped or sexually abused um, without other violence added to it. Um, So, you know, depending on your state, depending on um, how definitions are done, if you've experienced anything that 
here that you were talking about this and you're feeling uncomfortable about something that's happened, I would recommend talking to someone who can um, talk you through what uh, what qualifies as abuse and what you should what you maybe you should do um, both to protect yourself to get the help that you need and also potentially pursuing um, legal charges. And I think an important thing to understand is a lot of abusers are so manipulative mm-hmm. that they're able to do things in such a way to and gaslight you mm-hmm. to so that you think, well, w- did I do something? Did I do something to cause this? Was this my fault? Um, right. Or to make you think that it, it wasn't abuse or inappropriate. Um, I read a story just yesterday on Twitter, you know, an older man having conversa- inappropriate conversations with a teenage girl, mm-hmm. but he did it in such a way that you know, she may not have at that time, she later realized that it was inappropriate. Right. Um, so that, and, and I think also another thing when we talk about um, sexual abuse, um, so statutory rape, for instance. So if you have a um, teenager that is not legally able to consent, whether she appeared to have consented or not, that is still rape because the law says she is not legally able to consent. She's young. She doesn't, you know, the, that brain right. is still developing and, and whatnot. Exactly. I think and this is something that we'll talk about as far as uh, emotional abuse, which is another form is when you're dealing with the coercion. I think that's something that you're pointing there out there, Colleen, about um, abusers that are manipulative People can be coerced into certain behaviors when it's really not, they didn't consent or they weren't able to consent. Um, They have been uh, abused. And as we talk about these, they, they can be distinct categories, but in truth, these, there's a lot of overlap among these for most people. Um, And especially when you get into emotional abuse. Um, And then as we get into spiritual abuse, there are aspects of abuse that overlap. Um, emotional abuse, and this is one, I know this is one where um, Todd Bordeaux has talked about as far as the cruelty. Uh, this is where you, someone deliberately causes emotional pain. This can be intimidation, coercion, ridicule, harassment, uh, belittling. It's like verbal abuse would fall under this as well. And it is common among um, certainly certain conservative Christian groups that consider marriage to be very, um, you know, a sacred thing. And, and I do, you know, Colleen and I both agree that marriage is very uh, special. It's very important that we should uphold our marriage vows. But there are some that that say that, you know, if it's physical abuse, then you can get help and, and that's wrong. If it's just emotional abuse, and you hear that that term, just emotional abuse, like, that's not enough to be abuse. It's not bad enough that it's emotionally abusive. But the truth is verbal abuse, emotional abuse is as damaging to us as, as human beings as physical sexual abuse are. Um, it, it destroys who we are as humans made in the image of God and it is cruel and we shouldn't discount that when we're talking to uh, survivors of abuse. 
And uh, one of the things Todd talked about, and I've seen it myself in stories that I've heard and talking to women, is that a lot of times a woman in that emotionally abusive marriage will feel helpless and even become mm-hmm. suicidal. There are stories of women who've even taken their life because they didn't know what else to do. And that is actually some emotional abuse is designed to do that, designed by the abuser to drive you to uh, a point of despair and of either helplessness or dependence or even suicide. We have notes that we use and Rachel added um, financial and I, I hadn't thought about this, but I'm glad that that you thought of this and the financial and this is mm-hmm. can be so manipulative. Um, I'm sure that you are probably similar to me and Brent. We both have a debit card and mm-hmm. we both have access to all of our money and we make, you know, we have a budget and we make wise decisions together and these sorts of things. But I hear these stories where um, the wife has no access and usually there's other kind of abuse going on too, but it is, a, it's used to control. Mm-hmm. Yeah withholding access to money or funds um, where often where you can't pay for uh, pay the bills or buy necessities uh, or you have to, you know, very dependent on the abuser to provide the funds that you need for necessities instead of, you know, having the, the freedom to go ahead and get the things that you need in the household. Um, conversely, and this is not particularly that it's just a tight financial situation, but this is where the abuser has access to spend the money freely on him or herself, um, but chooses to restrict access to the money uh, to control. And I hear it from many, uh, particularly women, Uh, who have been in abusive relationships, abusive marriages, that this is very common. Um, Also restricting access like to healthcare or health insurance. Um, It's all kind of tied together with preventing access to what they need. Uh, And I've even seen this, I guess would be more of a sort of emotional abuse, but Mm -hmm. my husband and I saw um, men that, restricted access of their wives to friends or their parents Mm -hmm. and probably fear that the wives would explain what was going on. Yeah. There's a lot of isolation involved, either physical isolation where you are physically moved, where you are away from family and friends or um, more of an emotional isolation where you're not allowed to talk to um, friends or family. Um, it's all and all of this gets down to abuse as control over another, um, which is it's frustrating, you know, especially if you have um, friends or family who are in or have been in abusive situations. Um, you often feel like there's not much you can do to help. And I'm not talking about, you know, that someone's being um, physically abused or sexually abused. And, you know, of course you can go to the authorities, but there are other ways that people are, are in controlling relationships and there's not a lot you can do besides, you know, be there and be their friend or be, be ready to help when you, when they ask. Um, and of course that says nothing for, that's not saying anything about the people who are in it themselves and how they feel. Um, you know, I'm not trying to say that those of us on the outside feel 
worse than they do. You know, but it is frustrating if you've had, if you know, somebody who's in one of these situations. I think that being being there when when they need you is is really important. And I've had a couple of situations where a woman called me in desperation and said, "Can I come over right now?" Mm-hmm. And we were able to help. Um, so spiritual abuse, and um, I think probably this one is one of the most misunderstood. Maybe you could define it for us. Yeah, there's a variety of things. When we talked to Diane Langberg, she gave uh, her book, Redeeming Power, talks about it some, and, and other places that she's written about. Um, and spiritual abuse, a quote from her, she says, when we talk about spiritual abuse, it's we're talking about using that which is sacred, including God's word, to control, misuse, deceive, or damage a person made in his image. And I think the thing that comes to my mind most often uh, when you think about this as spiritual abuse is you hear this, you're not saved, you're not really a Christian unless, right? And granted, because we are Christians, because we are believers, because uh, as, you know, Reformed Presbyterian believers that you know Colleen and I are. There are certain things like you know if you believe you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're not really a Christian, right? If you don't believe that God is a Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, that Jesus died for your sins and was and was raised again, you know, if you don't believe these things, then yes, you can say you're not really a Christian, right? You're not saved if you can't actually formulate that Jesus is your Savior. Beyond that. Right. You can even say it's not consistent with Christian faith to believe uh, that murder is okay, or, you know, you can say these things based on what the scripture says. But what I'm talking about when you say you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian unless it's when you add on things or you twist scripture or those who are in authority in a church or denomination put pressure on uh, those under them to believe or act or live or do a certain way um, in order to, uh, and again, it's the control issue, right? This is about being controlled by others, um, and they use Scripture to do it. One of the things, and this is um, was a lot of what Diane's book was about, but when somebody has any sort of authority over you, and they use that to manipulate and get you to do what they want for their good. Um, you know, you even have one of the examples I think of. If a if a professor, if if somebody is a professor at a university, there's even rules against him having an inappropriate relationship with the student, even if she's of age, because mm-hmm. there's he has a sort of authority, mm-hmm. and. And, and so these are the, this is what happens. They do have there is there there is um, some sort of authority that our pastors and elders have, and when they're spiritually abusive, they use that um, in various ways to manipulate and control and um, any number of things. One of the articles, and we'll have a number of resources uh, in the the notes for this episode. But one of the articles was by the pastor, David Murray. 
And he defines spiritual abuse as a sinful use of spiritual authority by Christian leaders to promote, protect, or enrich a person or Christian institution, regardless of the spiritual damage done to innocent parties in the cause of Christ. That's good. That's a really good one. So, um, I found kind of a little list on spiritual abuse, abuse of authority, manipulation, control, demand allegiance at all costs. One of the things I've, I've seen out there um, is a teaching that, and I, I know that people probably almost not believe this exists, but it does, that a wife is to obey her husband, even if it's something sinful. Um, it kind of sometimes goes along with this prophet, priest, and king idea. So the husband is responsible somehow. Um, and so, I mean, I can't, I know it sounds bizarre saying it, but I, I, we've met people that believe this, that the, the wife won't even be held responsible because it's her job to obey her husband. And the hus- if it's something sinful, then the husband will be held responsible. Yeah. And There are books for, for women, Christian women, that take that tact. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That, and I've yeah, seen Debbie Pearl takes uh, an approach like that in her books. Okay, so that that it's must there. be it's it's there. There is a similar sort of idea in churches with you obey the pastor and elders at, at all costs, and we've talked about this before. I can't remember which episode. Um, it may have been the one about church membership. Um, one of the things that you see in some of these spiritually abusive churches is an authority exercise that's not appropriate. Um, when a when a church is telling you how you have to school your children, mm-hmm. um, whether you can go on vacation, how to spend your money, you know, any number of craziness like that, whether you can see R-rated movies or dance or drink alcohol, Um how to dress, how, how to vote, yep. where to live, what kind yes. of jobs are appropriate, how to discipline your children, how to discipline your wife, which is another abusive issue, um, how to wash the dishes. There's, I mean, seriously, there are very intrusive ways. These are just not uh, appropriate for um, for pastors or spiritual leaders uh, to have this kind of access and control. Yes. Um, I will tell you that out there, there are um, examples of of church discipline for a woman that is not keeping her house well enough. Mm-hmm. The, these are abuses of authority. Yes. And, and again, we're going to keep going back to this. This is about control. It's about having control over others and influencing control and you know, you see that coercion and manipulation, and it really does diminish who we are as, uh, especially as Christians, those made in the image of God, who are being transformed to the image of Christ with the Spirit indwelling. And when you take away all Christian liberty and all Christian freedom that we have to to make those decisions as we are led and as we understand Scripture, it diminishes us as people. Yeah. One of the things I think of, too, just because of a, a couple of stories I heard recently is just inappropriate. Um, so, w- one of the stories I've heard 
and this woman is is very open about it, so I can share this, but they were in a very spiritually abusive church, and the pastor is meeting alone with her and talking to her about specifics of her marital intimacy life. That's inappropriate, and mm-hmm. it's being used in a manipulative way. It is. Yeah, just terribly inappropriate. An article that I found that I thought was really helpful was um, something on by Scott McKnight, and it's a review of a book uh, called Escaping the Maze of Spiritual Abuse by Lisa Oakley and Justin Humphrey. And Scott McKnight kind of summarizes some of the points from their book. And so I said, I have not read their book yet, but I found the summary in his article very helpful. Um, one thing that he he talked about is that when you're talking about spiritual abuse, uh, it can go well. It's most often done in terms of you know the leader is abusive or the leaders are abusive of their congregation. It can go both ways. Congregations can abuse pastors. As a pastor's daughter, I can say I've seen it. Um, pastors can abuse congregations, and people within churches can abuse each other. Right. So. You know, this when we're talking about this, generally there is that kind of power over as part of it, but um, it, more generally, spiritual abuse can happen in various different formats. So, in this article, Scott McKnight says that spiritual abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse uh, characterized by a system systematic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. Uh, it says it may include manipulation and exploitation, enforced accountability, censorship of sorry censorship of decision making, requirements for secrecy and silence, uh, a coercion to conform or an inability to ask questions, control through the use of sacred texts or teaching, requirement of obedience to the abuser, the suggestion that the abuser has a divine position. Isolation as a means of punishment and superiority and elitism. And these are things, especially right now, as you see various big organizations or well-known figures who are being charged with abuse, you see patterns of these things uh, show up again and again, where there is control or attempts at control by the leadership, um, a requirement that you uh, support like the coercion to conform that you support the leadership's decisions and, and conform to what they tell you to do that you, if you have a problem that you keep it quiet, if there is a problem that you don't tell others, you know, that you can't um, confront a, a leader who's abusive because that person is, you know, anointed or is um, God's, uh, God is at work through this person in their ministry, and you would undermine their ministry if you came forward. And you know, there's it, uh, this insistence of in obedience, right? That you have to obey. All of these things show up again and again through various um, well-known abuse cases that are coming forward in various organizations and leaders. I've I've also heard um, of pastors and elders that tell. Their congregants, they are not allowed to seek counsel of any kind outside mm-hmm. of their pastor and elders. Um, and also the secrecy thing. Uh, sometimes you're told, don't tell anybody this. Uh, one, 
one gal years ago contacted me and said, my pastor talked to me about these things and told me not to tell my husband. Mm-hmm. That seems wrong to me. Uh, I like the the title of Wade Mullen's book, mm-hmm. Something's Not Right, because I think a lot of times we just feel uneasy, like something isn't right mm-hmm. about a situation. Uh, and a lot of times, it, there are a lot of people that are maybe new to the faith, and they've never been in a church before, and so uh, they, you know, think this is the way it's supposed to be. The other thing that happens, I know that um, sometimes somebody grew up in maybe a large church, pastor didn't even know them, mm-hmm. and now they're in a church, and they're like, wow, we have a relationship with our pastor, this is so great, but it ends up being a controlling thing. And, you know, they, if you talk to people who've come out of these situations about when they kind of thought, okay, something doesn't seem right here. Um, it's sometimes a process of them realizing, wait, this is spiritually abusive. They don't necessarily recognize it initially. Yes. Um, you know, another way uh, that you see, Um, we'll see this in a couple different things we talk about that scripture is used as a way to control and one of the things that you see a lot is uh, they will appeal to Matthew 18 and say that you know you can't you know address any issues of abuse or concerns unless you do it in a in a fashion um that they have based on Matthew 18 whether or not it is actually the way Matthew 18 is meant to be used um and if you don't do it that way, then you're the one who is in sin. And then they don't have to deal with your accusations because you didn't go, to go about it the right way, you know. Um, but again, all this is about a concern with control and with protecting those who are in power instead of um, protecting those who are um, vulnerable within the congregation. And also one of the things even – um, regardless of what kind of church you're in, sometimes it's you're not sure who to go to if it's the pastor that's, you know, um, the abuser. Yeah. Um, one thing I liked in also in uh, Scott McKnight's article talks about how spiritual abuse impacts people. And he, it, in summarizing that book, he talks about it leads to sorts of questions, certain certain sorts of questions like, uh, who can I trust? Who am I? How do I cope? What do I believe? How long is this going to last? Who is here to support me? Um, and, you know, as someone who has been in difficult church situations uh, in my lifetime, um, you certainly are left with a lot of questions about, how to trust, who to trust, um, you know, what happened, what's going on, you know, and it can lean depending on the severity of the abuse and how the, how it's used, you know, what do I believe? Am I really a Christian if I disagree? Um, there are a lot of people who, and I hear from a lot of women particularly, but men and women both, who've come out of controlling spiritually abusive churches and situations where um, they can hardly stand to read certain passages of Scripture, because not because the Scripture itself 
is difficult or says something they don't agree with, but because of the way those scriptures were used to enforce certain behaviors or to punish punish them. And it can become hard to um, disentangle the teaching from what scripture actually says for them. And in fact, sadly, um, there are a lot of stories of people that leave the church altogether. Mm-hmm. They're so wounded. Um, some of them leave the faith altogether. Some of them just leave the church. And because of these very questions, they, they don't trust the church at all. They don't trust pastors at all. I think this is where we need to be uh, gentle with others around us as they are working through um, what they've been through and the trauma of the abuse and um, be uh, slow to judge and quick to encourage um, because it is a lot to try to disentangle. Yeah. And sometimes you need to give someone time to kind of work through Mm -hmm. everything. And again, you know, Colleen and I have said in other episodes and places that we strongly support getting, you know, the professional help for um, the trauma, right? That if if you've been through one of these situations like we're talking about, if you recognize this as, as what you've experienced and you're dealing with the, the fallout of it, uh, it can be really helpful to talk to um, – a counselor, a therapist, someone who has the the trauma-informed background to really help you work through it. There's a a really good quote from Diane's book. Um, I'll read part of it. And I'm going to link her book in the episode notes because if you're wanting to learn more about this, her book is just excellent. Spiritual abuse involves using the sacred to harm or deceive the soul of another. What power tools might someone use to carry out such a diabolical work? They're the tools common in every kind of abuse. The most obvious is words. When we use God's sacred word in a way that harms another, commanding them to do wrong, manipulating them, deceiving them, or humiliating them, we have spiritual, spiritually abused them. We tell them, God says, but we don't reflect the character of God whose word we use. We twist God's word in order to coerce, to manipulate. A powerful position in religious context carries inherent spiritual authority. Pastor, priest, elder, Christian school teacher, and youth leader are all positions that invite trust. And see, the, this is so important is we, we want to be able to trust those in authority. And when the person that you think that you should trust the most um, ends up using their spiritual position mm-hmm. to harm you. It's devastating. It is. Um, another part of that, that passage that I think is really helpful. Um, she says a pastor with a theological degree and knowledge of scripture can lift words out of those scriptures, pronounce them with authority, and wound those under their care. And an ability to articulate theological truths does not mean the speaker is an obedient servant of God. 
a spiritual leader has all the power tools at their disposal and can use them to harm verbally, sexually, emotionally, physically, financially, and spiritually. No matter the tool or the method of delivery, all forms of abuse always do spiritual damage. One cannot sexually, physically, or verbally abuse another person without also inflicting spiritual abuse. Yeah, that was an important point she makes in the book. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't listened to our uh, episode where we interviewed her, I really recommend it. She's a wealth of knowledge. Um, and it was just a really encouraging interview to talk with her. Yeah, we're going to talk about some examples of spiritual abuse. And I was so pleased in her book, this first one that we're going to talk about, which I'm going to let you talk about because it kind of plays mm-hmm. in with your book too. And that's flawed teachings on men and women. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes along with those flawed teachings on what authority and submission looks like in marriage can also um, be what authority and submission looks like in the church. Yeah. um, A couple places in my book, I talk about how certain beliefs are then used to abuse. And of course, the teachings about excuse me, teachings about men and women um, can be spiritually abusive. If you teach that men um, are the representation of Christ, their families, and then men are the mediators then for women and children, this is spiritually abusive because it denies women and children direct access to God, and it contradicts the priesthood of all believers. Uh, It's spiritually abusive to teach that women are more easily deceived than men, are prone to usurping male authority. Um, because it undermines the role that women have as co-laborers with men, and it creates a climate of suspicion and distrust. Right? This is—it's not the way things should be. Um, we cover some of this in a couple different episodes. Where we've talked about my book and about um, the beliefs about men and women, and also about uh, are women more easily deceived. Um, well, one one of the things I did want to say on on this is the same way that I think abusers sometimes seek out a church community because Mm -hmm. they're going to be trusting and forgiving. I think that um, people who are more prone to abusive and controlling behavior will seek a church that affirms these sorts of views um, because then they're um, basically being told, yep, it's okay for you to behave this way. In Mm -hmm. fact, you ought to. You were talking about um, people that have been in these abusive situations having a difficult time with certain passages of passages of scripture because mm-hmm. of the way that they were used, and and that's another way um, we have abusing scripture to control how the congregation lives, works, um, parents treats each other. And one of the things I think happens too is they these are not pastors who are pointing you to Christ. Right. Um, A lot of times there's a sort of manipulation and control that is set up to make you question your salvation um, because of the way these things are used. Well, you see, you know, abusive pastors and spiritually abusive churches, they were the leaders, uh, for example, um, they tell you one day that uh, everyone should be homeschooling their kids, that if you're not homeschooling, then you're not really a believer and, it goes beyond, you know, making 
decisions that we have to make about where the best place is or, you know, there, there are think discussions that we can have, but when your pastor tells you that you're not really a Christian unless you um, educate your kids a particular way, um, that's spiritually abusive. Um, but, you know, this, so a pastor says one day that everyone should be homeschooling, but then the church decides to start a, um, a Christian school, right? So now, uh, unless you put your kids in the church's Christian school, then uh, you're not really a, a good Christian unless your kid, you're doing supporting this ministry and have your kids in this church uh, church school, which you know, if you get down to it would be also financially abusive and you know emotionally abusive. And again, talking about how all these overlap, um, but you see it in any, in many things. You know, when you hear sermons on, you know, if you don't vote for X Y Z candidate for X Y Z reasons, then you know you you aren't a good Christian. Um, if you read the Harry Potter books, for example, um, or if you let your kids listen to certain kinds of music, you know, these are all ways in which um, a church leadership can, is abusing that their authority to control and you know again of course when we've talked about this before about you know discernment and wisdom it's one thing if you go to if you want to talk about you know is it a good idea to to watch certain programs or expose our kids to certain kinds of music or um you know should we support um policies that are are unchristian, right? You know, there, there are ways in which we can have discussions, but ultimately we are all responsible to God directly on what we do and how we obey him. And we're going to have to make these decisions on our own. Right. And sometimes you'll hear it framed in such a way. Um, a real Christian mm-hmm. would ABC or wouldn't, right. you know, this and that. Godly men, godly women do right. X, Y, Z. I saw one this last week, um, a guy reporting that his pastor had said that anyone who had voted a certain way uh, was not going to be allowed to take communion. Really? In the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, we don't even talk about that in church. I'm like, first off, how you vote is between you and God. Right. right. Um, and... It is not up to the church to know that. <laughs> right. Um, and that can be, abu- be abused in both directions politically, right? You know? Yeah. There are people on all sides of that divide um, in the church. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's it's kind of a good reminder with a lot of things going on. Um, you know, I... I just almost can't handle it. So I've been on social media very little because like you said, it's on all sides. Mm-hmm. You, you get one size side mocking you. Mm-hmm. If you do, don't do such and such. And the other side mocking you if you do. And yeah. it's a good reminder that we need to have love and grace and kindness and understanding and not do stuff like that. <laughs> well, and this is where you, you mentioned earlier that, congregants can spiritually abuse each other and this is where i think you see that kind of peer pressure spiritual abuse like you know if you're going to be part of our group then you have to agree with us on all these things whatever these things are 
And um, yeah, that's, it's one thing when we were talking about um, like as a denomination, as believers that, you know, we have certain standards that we uphold um, the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms that we, we look to scripture. There are things that we say that are, you know, boundary lines that we set up. It's when you go beyond those, when you are going into the areas of Christian liberty and making hedges and lists of rules that you must keep on top of everything else in order to be um, considered, you know, in the in crowd in a group or an organization. That's, um, it's truly abusive in how we treat each other. Yeah, you kind of have this almost tribe mentality. Mm-hmm. And here are all the things you must hold to to belong to our tribe. And but but then you see a lot of times, well, I'll give an example. We have gotten this. Um, you know, just with the podcast, we don't fit 100% into the complementarian tribe. So mm-hmm. we're automatically going to decide that you're in the other tribe. And we're going to mock you and we're going to be unkind. And even though that's not true either, Right. You know, it's just, um, we need to, I think there's a verse that says to love your neighbor as yourself. So, a couple different places. Yeah. And, you know, there's, in the church, we are to love one another. I think First Peter, you, in some versions, use the word deeply because of what Christ has done and really reflected upon that. What does it mean to love my brothers and sisters deeply. So, recognizing spiritual abuse, I think this is one of the things that I think Rachel and I have both gotten private messages about. This is what's going on in my situation. Um, is, is this abusive? So, how can we recognize spiritual abuse? In the first chapter of uh, Beyond Authority and Submission, well, what I talk about is defining both authority and submission and what godly authority looks like and what godly submission looks like. And um, part of what I talk about is the the limits to authority. You know, only God has unlimited authority. The rest of us have limited authority or um, we've, it's um, delegated authority right, that we have. Um so we're talking about church authority. Church authority, uh, spiritual authority, is limited in scope. Um, your church leadership has authority um, over their local congregation. They don't have authority over uh, people in other congregations. Um, you know, just because pastor. Well, big name pastor so and so at the big church in the other state. Right, because they say something, it does not mean that they have the authority to tell you how you must live. Right, they are not your pastor. This is not your church. This is not the authority that you have agreed to submit to. And you know, it, now, right now, with everybody listening to online sermons, and um, you can enjoy those and podcasts and things by by leaders. These are very; they can be very informative, very helpful. But um, you're not submitting to the authority of every pastor you listen to on a podcast, right? They, they are not right. your pastor, right? Um, and even in our own local churches, there is a limit to the church's authority. And this is the things we've been talking about. 
Um, the church does not have the authority to tell you how to dress, how to vote, how to eat, where to live, how to educate your kids, how to discipline, you know, um, quoting from the Westminster Confession, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And so we have liberty as Christians to make the decisions about these kinds of things. And of course, we should never submit to sinful commands and our church leaders should never ask us to. Yeah. Have you seen some of these um, church covenants? I think mm-hmm. they're called. I've just been, I saw one that said, it said no rated R movies, no dancing, no drinking. Um, and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when we talked about, we did the episode on the difference between like covenants versus like membership vows and different forms of government. Um, it really is, when we looked at the different ones, it's really amazing the scope of things that are put into to a lot of those covenants. Um, and, uh, you know, as we talked about and as we we're saying here, I think that, that it's an overreach on the part of the church. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the rebel that I am when I was going deciding where to go to college, uh, one of the things that um, – made me decide not to even look at a couple of the, the well-known Christian colleges. So you had to sign something saying you wouldn't dance. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> and I had grown up in the Southern Baptist. And by that point I was Presbyterian. I'm like, I'm not going back to that kind of control, you know, over what I do. And yes, I went dancing when I was in college. It was fun. Um, I was at AM. There's a lot of country dancing done. Um, so, you know, I think that those are things just have to be aware of, you know, what, what it's appropriate for someone to ask you to do and say and, and believe and what is an inappropriate overreach of their authority. You know, I went to very legalistic Christian mm-hmm. colleges. I don't think, I don't remember dancing being on there. I can't dance at all. <laughs> At all, so it would be just fine with me. But no, um, no, I went to very, oh goodness, I went to, you know, you had to wear dresses to class, and the guys had to wear a tie and suit coat, and um, we had white glove checks in our rooms. The guys didn't, just the girls. There's, I don't know if it's still this way, but one of the colleges, Christian colleges, well known. Um, where I had friends that went, you had to sign something about, about dating too, like that you wouldn't date oh, really? in certain ways. Yeah. It was, again, um, this is just going above and beyond the, the proper authority that um, leadership should have. Yes, very, very much so. Well, I think that the big question now is um, how do we deal with that? How do we respond to it? Um, You know, one of the things we mentioned earlier, if somebody comes to you, listen to them. I think you're right. Listening to someone, um, encouraging them, um, you know, these are, it is a sensitive thing with all, with, responding to abuse, even spiritual abuse, it's sensitive um, and, and how to the steps that you take and being careful and protecting yourself um, uh, and helping those who have been abused protect themselves. But um, 
Scott McKnight's article, again, talking about the, the Oakley and Humphreys book, um, give nine suggestions of what you can do if someone comes to you with a story of what may be spiritual abuse. Um, and so these suggestions are um, actively listen to the story, showing that you are taking it seriously. Ensure the individual telling the story knows that she or he is valued. Do not minimize, judge, or defend a person or the church. Be clear about the boundaries to confidentiality. Uh, Take care of offering prayer or scripture as a response. Ensure that the individual can make a choice as to whether he or she wants this. Avoid using Matthew 18 as a first principle in responding to a disclosure of spiritual abuse. Do not rush people to a place of forgiveness and reconciliation. Discuss the risk of harm with your safeguarding coordinator or lead and consider the next steps carefully. Ensure there is policy and procedure, including spiritual abuse in your church or denomination, and this is followed. Um, so that's kind of um, the advice there goes from like personally to more um, corporately if you're in a, a position of authority at a church and someone comes and talks to you. Um, I do think it's important as it talks about listen. Um, listen carefully, take it seriously, um, encourage the person who comes to you or talking to you that they are valuable. I can guarantee you that if someone has been in an abusive situation and under spiritual abuse, that they question their worth. Um, it's important to um, not add to their abuse by um, heaping condemnation on them or um Applying, misapplying scriptures like Matthew 18 and, and others to control what they do next. And um, I think that the important point about not rushing people into forgiveness and reconciliation, um, it's a long process. There's a lot of steps involved. Um, you can't, accountability, I saw something this week, both accountability and uh, consequences are often involved, and they need to take place before you get to forgiveness and reconciliation. So, um, I think that uh, these are important steps, and especially listening to and encouraging someone, and then also encouraging them to um, to go to the right authorities to address the abuse. And for if you're in an abusive church situation, or suspect that you are in a spiritually abusive uh, situation, one of the first steps that can be the most helpful or beneficial is to try to get away from the situation, right? And you can get to another church, get to another leave so that you can be apart from that abuse. And because sometimes it takes being away from it for you to be able to process all of what was going on. Yeah, one one of the things, um, I really think that's so helpful. I'm going to link that article by Scott mm-hmm. McKnight in the episode notes because there's so much in it that's helpful. Um, I've seen a gazillion times where a wife is being abused, or I mean, we're talking even physical, where the woman goes to a pastor and pastor goes to the husband, comes back to the wife. Well, he's repentant, so you just need to forgive him. He'll be fine now, you know. And it do- doesn't work that way. Um, and then, and then, the 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 wife is um, then the one in sin for not forgiving right away. 
We've seen this with some of the church stories where children were sexually abused and went to the pastor and they did not go to the police. There's a lot of stories like this. And, and, and then the parents were told that the abuser was repentant and they needed to forgive and be okay with that abuser being around. And the parents don't want him around. So mm-hmm. they're being told, well, you're not forgiving then. And no police are ever involved. There's a lot of stories like that. So not good. Not good. I, th- I think your suggestion of getting away. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's not it's not going to work out, especially in these church situations. Sometimes there's not going to be reconciliation, unfortunately. It's very difficult. Right. So next week, we're going to be talking to um, to Scott McKnight, actually, and his daughter um, about their new book. They uh, went to Willow Creek, but they have a lot of so they know about some of our audience may not know about the Willow Creek situation, but they have a lot good to say on abuse that happens in the church. So that will be next week. And we do have a couple other episodes we are going to do on, on this topic. Um, we, we do want to do an episode on boundaries. I think that's going to be an important episode when we're talking about this. Cause I think just kind of, Having some of those tools and knowing how to use them can be helpful. So we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us.